Scripture reading this evening will be taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? If you've noticed on Sunday nights, each Sunday night, at least this month, and as we progress forward, we've been dealing with a a variety of different questions. And the question that we have posed before us tonight is a question that was posed by my daughter, Emmeline Grace. The question that she asked was this, as we were driving down Avenue D a couple of uh, weeks ago, she looked out her window in an area that she's familiar with and she knew that we weren't terribly far from this church building here. And she said, why are there two church buildings, Daddy? And it was an interesting question, interesting observation by a two-year-old to notice that there was another church building just down the street from the church building that the people that she knows and loves assembles with. And it's an interesting question, one that really the world over should ask, one that that every religious-minded individual should be wondering about. And so we're going to investigate that question this evening and, and try to discover what the Bible has to say to us about the concept of the church. And, and what we can glean from those principles about why there are so many churches today. Maybe a question that you've asked. Maybe you're visiting with us tonight and, and you're wondering, you know, I go to a different church building and, and assemble with a different group of people. Why do these people come over here to this church building? It's a great question to ask. And so let's consider some things this evening. The Apostle Paul talks about a few things in our scripture reading this evening that could be very well some causes of division, as he says, let there be no divisions among you. And he says in three different ways, and we could say even that there's even a fourth one if we wanted to add to that list of reasons for why there is religious division in the world. Number one being certainly that there is conflicting teaching among people. That some people teach this thing over here and some people teach something else completely different. And because of that, it leads to division. But even maybe another step or added element or layer upon that, people, because of those conflicting teachings, lead to what sometimes might be considered as prideful disagreements. That it's not just that I'm teaching something different than someone else, but those prideful disagreements are those that because I disagree with you so much, I'm not even going to listen to what you say, and I'm going to hold to what I believe, even if what you say seems to be uh, maybe even more reasonable. Paul says that we should be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's not to say that there aren't areas of judgment and areas of of maybe opinion, but when it comes to the truth, when it comes to what the Bible says about Scripture, about, about doctrine ultimately, that we ought to be of the same mind 
That is, believing the same things, teaching the same things, and, and having the same judgments. And then if we were to even add on another layer to that, Paul goes on to say in verse number 11 that it wasn't just that they were disagreeing or it wasn't just that they were teaching things that were different, but there were some that were contentiously arguing with one another. They were in some sort of quarrelsome arguments. He says, it has been declared to me that there are contentions among you. There are contentions among you and that, that you are so at odds with one another that it has led to these divisions that you have. And so it has been the case over the course of history that as you look out at the world around us, particularly the religious world, that you see divisions that some say, well, I am of Paul. Maybe that's not the name that they use, but that was the name that some were using in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as Paul was writing that letter to the church of Corinth. Or I am of Cephas or Peter, or I am of Apollos. You don't maybe see those names so much in the religious world today, but there are other names of men whereby people associate themselves as a different religious group. They denominate themselves. And so let's consider what the Bible has to say about that. And how can we know if we're assembling with a group of believers that is striving to be what the Bible teaches us, what the Bible wants us to be? You know, for many years there was this type of approach to trying to find some missing children. And it was that they would put these pictures of these missing children on these milk cartons. And, and they would have some identifying characteristics about them. Maybe that they're four foot, eight inches tall, and they have brown hair, blue eyes, and this individual's a male, and they're 11 years old, and last time we saw them, they're about 95 pounds. And there are some very specific identifying characteristics about those individuals that would help someone to, to know or identify that person if they saw them on the street so that they could relay that information to local authorities and help them to come to know that, that they've been seen or, or, or uh, observed out in, in the population, uh, in their, their particular community. And that particular approach is, is useful, right? It's, it's easy to think about. These are specific identifying characteristics that help us to see that this is that particular person. Now, some of us may share some of those similarities, and some of us may share, well, those of us that are older are no longer 95 pounds or 4 foot 8, right? But as you think about those particular identifying characteristics, they help us to identify and know for certain that that is who I'm looking for. In fact, there is also another area of expertise where people are striving to make sure that they are getting the real thing, that they're getting the real item that they're, that they're in need of, and that is when we exchange currency. When you think about a $5 bill, every $5 bill is going to have a picture of Abraham Lincoln, at least his, his, uh, his, his head, his upper body there, that are going to be portrayed on that particular item. If you get a $5 bill and it has George Washington on it, you know something's fishy here, don't you? And so it's interesting if you go on various websites and try to find some information about how do I identify what might be counterfeit currency versus what is authentic and genuine currency, you might find something like this. This comes from a website that says that if you're to look at a, an authentic bill versus a counterfeit bill, you're going to find that the portrait is going to appear lifelike and stand out distinctly from the background, whereas the counterfeit portrait is usually lifeless, it's flat, that the details merge into the background, which is often too dark or, or mottled. But then you also have a specific serial number, and those serial numbers are even printed in a specific way. Genuine serial numbers have a distinctive style. They're evenly spaced. The serial numbers are printed in the same ink color as the treasury seal, but on a counterfeit, the serial numbers 
may differ in a color or shade of ink from the treasury seal. The numbers may not be uniformly spaced or aligned. So there are various identifying markers on a, on a particular type of currency that would help us to know, is this real or is this, is this counterfeit? Not only the portrait of the serial numbers, but also the border around the edge of the bill. The border of a counterfeit bill, the lines in the border of a genuine bill are clear and unbroken, whereas the counterfeit, the lines in the outer margin and scroll work may be blurred and indistinct. And then finally, the paper. They say that genuine currency has tiny red and blue fibers that are actually embedded within the paper. But with a counterfeit bill, those lines that are insinuating to be true bills and within a, within a uh, true lines within a bill, they're actually printed on. They're not embedded in the fibers of the paper. And so close inspection reveals that on the counterfeit, the notes are printed on the surface. They're not actually embedded within the substrate itself. So I want to submit to you that in a somewhat similar way, we can identify the church and what we read about it in the Bible with how we might go about identifying various authentic currencies. Just as genuine currency has identifying marks, so do genuine authentic churches. A genuine church is going to have a clear portrait or, or a unique head, a very distinct head, a head that is most definitely the authority figure within that group. We'll also have a specific serial number, as we might say, a unique name or names, names that are specific and again, distinct. Or a distinct border, that is, there are, there are unique parameters by which that, a church, by which that church abides within. They, they don't go outside of those parameters. There is a distinct border there for a reason, and it helps to identify that that church is striving to be what it's called to be according to the Scriptures. And then finally, that complex paper, that, those, that, that particular church is made up of individuals, And those individuals, those members, have themselves also unique characteristics. So consider first with me this clear portrait. This clear portrait. That is to say that the church of the Bible has a unique head, and that the head is God-ordained. They're not man-selected. They're not chosen by men, but this particular head, as Ephesians 1, verse 22 tells us, is very clearly Jesus Christ himself. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter number 1, verse number 22. Speaking of God, in Ephesians 1, verse 22, He, that being God, put all things under His, or Jesus' feet, and gave him, that is Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so as you think about the head being the, that which is God-ordained and not man-selected, we need to realize that God planned the church in eternity. A couple of pages later in Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 11, that God purposed it, he planned it from the very beginning of time, that Jesus would be the one to accomplish his will. And as such, Jesus essentially earns the right to be given headship by God, and only God can give this right. And so as you look out among the religious world around us, you see some that are set up as heads of various religious bodies. But God didn't plan it that way. God planned for Jesus to be the head of the church. But secondly, not only was Jesus ordained by God, but he's also given all authority. That is, he is the head 
being the one that is preeminent in authority. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says that he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Some religious organizations elevate certain men over others. They give them particular titles or effigies that, that, that say that those individuals are, are different or better than others, but as we think about who Jesus is, he is the one with supreme authority, not only in their prominence, in his prominence as the head, but also in the teaching and the ability that he has to decide what is right and wrong. Plainly put, the church of the Bible follows only Jesus and the inspired words of the apostles that Jesus inspired with the Holy Spirit or sent the Holy Spirit to inspire them with. And so Jesus is the head and he is preeminent in authority, but he's also the head in the sense that he is the sole savior of the one body. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 tells us, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Again, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse number 4, we read that there is but one body And if we carry that out, if there's only one body, it only makes sense to think about the fact that there is only one head. It's only consistent to approach it from that angle. And Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And then finally, in this particular consideration, the head is properly placed in the chain of command. In the midst of talking about head coverings in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 3, Paul makes this particular statement. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul's not insinuating here that a husband is more important than his wife, nor is he insinuating, nor is Paul here insinuating that God, the Father, ultimately is more important than Jesus, but that there is this particular chain of command that takes place. And so is the case with the church as we think about Jesus as the head. And later on, we'll talk about the organization as it's concerning the church, that there are only local elders, that there are not, uh, there's not any particular design by which there is some sort of, uh, of, of practice by which you have this uh, hierarchical approach. And so in the church, you have Jesus as the head and local groups of elders that, or, that are ordained by God, and they meet those particular qualifications. And as we think about that chain of command, Jesus has been given headship by God, and he is the one by which we have communication with the Father, and he has given inspiration through the Holy Spirit to these other individuals, the the apostles, that bring about other doctrines for us to understand. So the head is properly placed in the chain of command. But not only do we see a clear portrait, we also see within the church of the Bible a specific serial number, if you will. That serial number that identifies that particular bill as legitimate, as real, as genuine, and that it coincides with these other numbers that are saved in the the, the server of of the U.S. Treasury that says this is a legitimate item. The serial number, the church of the Bible, has certain unique names. We say names in a plural sense because we could identify the church with a variety of different words, and we'll talk about that more as we progress. The unique names indicate relationship. 
You know, we need to understand that the Church of the Bible has these certain unique names, but they aren't proper names in the sense that they are names that, that are given to us as that is the only name that identifies us by that, by that word. The word for church in the original language in, in the Greek is ekklesia, which simply meant the called out, the assembly, the group of believers that, that came together to be followers of Jesus. And that was a word that was used in the original language to identify even some s- sort of civic bodies that came together to rule on different types of, of, of laws and, and rules and ordinances within a particular society. And Jesus used that word to describe his called out group, his called out body. He says in Matthew chapter number 16, verse 18, in response to Peter's well-known confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock that is the confession that, Jesus made, that Peter made, I will build my church, my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This word my indicates this connection, this association that is between him and this group of individuals, this assembly, this collective body. And Jesus, as the one who has this relationship with it, not only does he have a relationship with it in the sense that he's connected to it, but also he owns it. He owns it. The unique names indicate ownership. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders before he leaves them, he says, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he, that being Jesus, purchased with his own blood. If you purchase something, if you go out and spend some money on a vehicle or on a new house or just some sort of clothing, you are now the owner of that rightfully because you've purchased it. Not only is Jesus associated with the church in the sense that it's his, that's the one that he has a relationship with, it, with, but he also owns it because he purchased it with his blood. And as such, when we think about the names that the church wears throughout Scripture and that it should wear today, it ought to be connected to Jesus and him only, or God being Jesus as being God. So we could say that in Romans chapter number 16, verse 16, we have a name that we find that is consistent with Scripture because it's found in Scripture. Romans chapter 16, verse 16 says, Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Now again, this isn't a proper name in the sense that that's the only name that could be used because we could say that the church of Jesus salutes you. It's the same individual. We could say that this particular group of people here is the kingdom of Jesus Christ that meets at Katy. And we're not changing anything. We're just using different words that describe the same relationship and the same connection between Jesus and his people. And so the unique names are consistent with Scripture. So if you look out in the religious world today, and you might see some different names as you drive down the street, those names that don't have any association with Jesus, that don't indicate a relationship with God the Father, that don't indicate that, that we belong to Jesus, they may be coming short of what Scripture teaches and not indicating that true relationship that belongs between the church and the head, being Jesus Christ. And finally, the unique names are only modified by location through Scripture. Now, through Scripture, you see that 
churches are sometimes talked about in a local sense, but also in a universal sense. That is the church the world over, that all of us together, no matter where we are, make up the collective body, the collective church of our Lord. But you also see within Scripture that some congregations are modified by where they are. That is the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. But some religious bodies use modifying words that indicate origin or order of origin, such as first or second. Some religious bodies use modifying words that indicate association with another man. Others use modifying words that indicate an emphasis on a particular doctrine, such as the word grace. But in Scripture, again, churches were only spoken of in the universal sense and in the local sense, and that they only belong to Jesus or to the church of God, which is at Corinth and not to some other man. And so we need to ask ourselves, if if this religious body associates itself with a specific man not being Jesus, different than another religious body does, are they being consistent with Scripture? Those are some identifying characteristics, just like we look at the serial number on a dollar bill or a five dollar bill. But not only a a specific serial number and a, a distinct head, we also see a distinct border by which the church operates. The Church of the Bible has unique parameters by which they abide by. The unique parameters guide entrance and inclusion into the church. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2, we have the day of Pentecost in which we find the church first being established. And so if we're going to look at a chapter of of, what did the church look like as it first was established in the New Testament? This is a great chapter to look to. Some churches, some religious organizations and bodies teach that you need to say a particular prayer to to be added to this uh, body, or or that you need to be voted in by an assembly of people that that say, yes, we'll we'll allow them to be part of this church. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we see that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so, you're not saved because you're part of the church, but rather you are part of the church because you've already been saved. How are we saved? How do we enter into this religious body? Look back up a few verses at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and let every one of you be baptized. This is Peter's response to their question. What do we do? What do we do? How do we, how do we get in a right relationship with God? And he says, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children, to all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That's being, that being you and me. Though we weren't there on that day, this promise was, is available to us even today. And that as we are saved, in verse number 41, those that gladly were, received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added. What were they added to? The church. To the church that belongs to Jesus. To the church that... Jesus purchased with his own blood. And so these unique parameters, this guide to entrance and inclusion within the church is not something that's set up by man. You know, I think that this person ought to have these particular characteristics and qualities, and this person ought to have X amount of of influence in in the community. It doesn't work like that. Rather, if the Lord has added an individual to the church because he's responded in obedient faith to what the gospel says, then the Lord adds them, and we should accept them. Because they're already part of us as the church. Not only that, the unique parameters also guide worship. 
the guide worship. John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said that God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The church of the Bible worships as God has prescribed, not as man prefers. You know, there are a lot of reasons why people might want to do certain things in worship to God because they think something sounds better or, or that it engages them more. We have to remember that as the church that we are worshiping our God, our Savior, because of what he's done for us and because of who he is and because of what he's asked for. And for us as the church to do something different would be irresponsible and inconsistent with Scripture. The unique parameters also guide organization. Paul said to Timothy or to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We mentioned this earlier, that there are particular elders within a congregation to serve in a capacity in that local sense, not in a hierarchical sense that in they, that in they might have a region that they are over, or a state that they are over, or a, a nation that they are over, but rather they are locally within a local assembly that they are to serve as elders to shepherd the flock there. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Notice that phrase there, the husband of one wife. Some religious organizations include elders within their body of believers, that aren't married, and that don't even have children. That's not what Paul goes on to explain that an elder should be in, the, in 1 Timothy chapter number 3. And so if we look at a religious body, again, are, how do we identify them? Are they doing what the Bible says? Or are they consistent with Scripture? And then the unique parameters also guide faithful living. They guide faithful living. James chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. This transitions, helps to transition us into our final thought this evening. That the church of the Bible not only has a distinct head, that it not only does it have specific names and, and a distinct border, but it also is made up of a complex paper, if you will, going back to that analogy from the genuine currency. That within that paper, there are these specific embedded fibers that they're not just printed on, they're not just superficial on the surface, but rather that the church of the Bible is made up of members with specific, unique characteristics. These characteristics could include, they're not limited to these. By the way, John talked about the fact that this morning that there are a variety of personalities that the churches possess throughout the world, that each congregation may have a different personality. But he said this, not to, uh, not to uh, say that they should, because of those personalities, not hold to doctrine or hold to particular scriptures, but that they just have different approaches to things because of their personalities, but that they should still remain true to those doctrines. And some of those doctrines, some of those approaches, some of those characteristics should be this, that they are genuine individuals. Paul, writing to Timothy, thanked him because he knew he had a sincere or genuine faith. He said, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. You know, some in the world around us look at churches and they say, you know what? I don't want to be a part of those people because they are so fake. They're so hypocritical. And you know what? Sometimes they're right. The church of the Bible is made up of people who are genuine about their faith. Not perfect. They slip up. We all do. But genuine, truly striving to be what we ought to be. And I would dare say that if a church, an assembly of people, is made up of 
a bunch of members that are insincere and, in, and not genuine, that, that, that church may not be a genuine and authentic church. Not only should they be genuine, but they should also, their characteristics should also include continual growth. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Not growing only numerically, though that will be the case as we'll talk about here in a moment, but also, and perhaps more importantly, individually growing spiritually. That ought to be our, our goal, our aim, that, that we didn't just become Christians just to get salvation and we're done. We've, we've checked the box and, and, and we don't have to work any longer at, at striving to become more like Jesus, but rather that a church should be made up of individuals that are continually growing. As a church member here tonight, could that be said about you? They're also made up of individuals with unique characteristics that include hospitality and generosity. These individuals contributed to the needs of the saints and to show hospitality. You know, some people may look at the church just as a social club. Some people in the world may say they only get together because they share similar uh, ideas and they're similar personalities and they just want to be together and, and have friends and that's an easy way to do it. But rather, the church ought to be people that show hospitality and generosity. And when we don't do that, when we don't show generosity and hospitality to others, we may, be, may very well be verifying their claims. The church of the Bible should have individuals that are hospitable and generous. And finally, the, the church of the Bible should be made up of individuals with unique characteristics that include fruitfulness. As we said a moment ago, yes, it's not just about growing numerically, but the church of the Bible also ought to be growing numerically because we ought to be sharing the gospel with those that are lost. If we're not doing so, we may not be the church of the Bible. We may not be holding true to what the scriptures teach. So what do we do with the churches that are not genuine? The ones that are inauthentic, the ones that, dare we say, are counterfeit. Not to be ugly or, or mean-spirited. Despite the fact that some may be sincere and as honest as possible, it only makes sense that God would do with those inauthentic churches what a bank teller would do with an inauthentic $100 bill. Turn with me in your Bibles as we close to Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation chapter number 3. As you're turning there, you'll remember from Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of of my Father which is in heaven. And writing to the churches of Asia, Jesus in Revelation chapter number three says very specifically about the church at Laodicea in verses 15 and 16. He says this, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. He's writing to the church and he says, look, you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will spew you out of my mouth, some translations say. There is very much reason, scriptural reason, to believe that some churches are not going to be acceptable before our God in heaven. 
are not today and won't be in an eternity. But it may not only just be those churches that are the religious organizations that we think about that we sometimes classify as denominations, that wear the names of other men, but even some churches that hold to all the things we've talked about to a certain degree, but they're not genuine. They're not hospitable. They're not continually growing or fruitful. Or maybe they check all the boxes, if you will, on all the other things, but all on the way, they were lukewarm. They weren't spiritually zealous. didn't have a spiritual fervor about them. Jesus will spew us out of his mouth if we're like that as well. Are you a part of that church this evening, the church of the Bible? We want you to be, because we said a little while ago in Acts chapter 2, that the church is made up of saved people. You can't go to heaven unless you're part of the church, but not because you're part of the church, but because Jesus already saved you. And we want you to be saved tonight if you're not a Christian. Put them on in baptism. That's how they were doing in Acts chapter 2. After having heard the word and believed in him and confessed his name and repented of, those, of the evil deeds, the things that they needed to change, they put their Lord on in baptism. We want you to do that tonight as well. But if you are a Christian, maybe you're a part of the church, you've been added to the church, but you haven't been living in a way that is consistent with those characteristics that we talked about at the end, we want you to make those things right. If there's anything that we can do for you, we ask that you come. Together we stand and as we sing.